Hugo Bound Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, it is with great pleasure that I'm speaking with Chris Wiggins, an associate professor of applied mathematics at Columbia University and the New York Times chief data scientist, and Matthew L. Jones, a professor of history at Princeton University and former Guggenheim fellow. We'll be talking about their recent book, How Data Happened, and the Columbia course it expands upon. Data, past, present, and future. From facial recognition to automated decision systems that inform who get loans and who receives bail, we all now move through a world determined by data-empowered algorithms. Now, these technologies didn't just appear. They are part of a history that goes back centuries, from the census enshrined in the US Constitution to the birth of eugenics in Victorian Britain to the development of Google search. Now, DJ Patel, former US chief data scientist, said of this book, this is the first comprehensive look at the history of data and how power has played a critical role in shaping the history. It's a must read for any data scientist about how we got here and what we need to do to ensure that data works for everyone. End quote. So if you're a data scientist, machine learning engineer, or work with data in any way, it's increasingly important to know more about the history and future of the work that you do and understand how your work impacts society and the world. So in this conversation, among other things, Chris, Matthew, and I will delve into are the history of human use of data, how data are used to reveal insight and support decisions, how data and data-powered algorithms shape, constrain, and manipulate our commercial, civic, and personal transactions and experiences, and how exploration and analysis of data have become part of our logic and rhetoric of communication and persuasion, especially including visual rhetoric. A bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know is currently on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. If you don't like it, do not write a review. Also, this episode was recorded as a YouTube live stream. So when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have many more such live streams and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date. The link's in the show notes. I'm also really excited to be doing another live stream soon with Hamil Hussein about lessons learned from deploying large language models in production. So Hamill is a dear friend and a machine learning engineer who loves building machine learning infrastructure and tools. He leads and contributes to many popular open source machine learning projects. He also has extensive experience over 20 years, in fact, as a machine learning engineer across various industries, including large tech companies like Airbnb and GitHub. At GitHub, he led CodeSearchNet, a large language model for semantic search that was a precursor to Copilot. Hamill is also the founder of Parlance Labs, a research and consultancy focused on LLMs. Parlance Lab is working with tech forward companies like Honeycomb and ReChat to accelerate AI powered features in their products. Hamill also has a wealth of experience with end to end commercial deployment of LLMs, along with hard won perspectives from working with these technologies in the wild. I've included a link in the show notes that you can use to sign up to that live stream for free if you're interested. But let's get on with it. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients.
everyone. It's Hugo Bowne Anderson here. I am so excited to be here today with Chris Wiggins and Matthew Jones to be talking about data science, past, present, and future, and to be discussing their recent book, How Data Happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. Good afternoon. How are you both? Wonderful. Great to yeah, be here. Thanks great. for having us. Yeah, thanks so, so much. Such a wonderful pleasure. And thank you all for joining the live stream of this podcast recording as well. I'd just love to start by introducing both Chris and Matthew. Chris is an associate professor of applied mathematics at Columbia University and the New York Times chief data scientist. Matthew Jones is a professor at history at Princeton University and has been a Guggenheim fellow. But Matthew, you're very recently at Princeton, correct? And previously at Columbia. That's right. I'm about two weeks at Princeton. <laughs> Fantastic. And you both in the spring published a book, How Data Happened, that we're here to talk about today, based upon a course that you developed together for several years as well. So I would love to know a bit about each of you. Perhaps, Matthew, you could you could start with an idea to converge in this in this union. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a I'm a historian of computing and of mathematics. And and my own development was someone who was sort of you know, when I was young, very deeply interested in, the, in computing and then pure mathematics before I took a sort of humanistic turn and, and became interested in fundamentally questions of how is it that mathematics in particular and mathematically inspired things, axiomatics and other sorts, how do they come to have the prestige and importance they do? in modernity from the, the late 17th century onward. And I'd done a lot of work on an earlier period, but about 10 years ago now, I became super interested in how there was this resurgence of interest in particularly data-driven knowledge about the world that took this form of math mathematically inspired statistical domains claiming authority over more and more spaces of life, whether it's marketing or biology. And so my trajectory was, was sort of that. And then I intersected in a kind of wonderful way with Chris's interests. And it came initially in sort of an academic interest. And then it was actually in, in a conversation we were having with students in my living room at Columbia when they were the ones who were saying, well, the two of you ought to come together with a class. So that's kind of the genesis of, of my side of, of things. Amazing. Chris? So as Hugo knows, my background was actually in physics, not unlike Hugo's. As an undergraduate, I studied physics and I thought that was a great mindset for understanding the real world and the complexities of the real world. In graduate school, I worked on biological physics, which was another type of understanding complexity. And I went to graduate school at a time when biology became a data science. It sort of had its data moment in the late 90s with the sequencing of freely living organisms. So when that happened, I, I started my graduate degree at a time when biologists were not so interested in that kind of approach. And by the time I finished my PhD, biologists were very interested in trying to understand how do we make sense of abundant data. It was an example where a technological tool set change had driven a real change in mindset and, and, and had a, it led to a bunch of discussions about you know, what even is the role of hypotheses or data in trying to figure out what's true. So my research shifted as I tried to understand what is wheat and what is chaff when it comes to people trying to use data to make sense of what's true in biology. And on route, I realized that there was a lot of ways that we could sort of stress test applications of what we now call machine learning in different fields of the natural sciences. So that's sort of how I got interested in understanding data and how we use data as a tool to make sense of what is true. And, and around 2013, I started wondering, like, how did 
how did it get this way? How did the field of machine learning come to be? And how do we think of it as being clearly related to, but separate from statistics and the ancient field of artificial intelligence, which nobody was talking about when I started my graduate degree, or data science, which people were just starting to talk about when Matt and I met each other. And Matt actually gave a lecture on the history of machine learning, if I remember correctly, in the spring of 2013. So that was a, a great time for Matt and I to start talking about really understanding the history of these ideas for a variety of reasons. And then we were fortunate enough to develop that into a class and then this book. Fantastic. I do think it's wonderful. And definitely there's a significant lack of all the talk of interdisciplinary research that, that happens. Like the quote-unquote sciences meeting the quote-unquote humanities is something we definitively don't don't see enough of, I think. And people should check out the course online. If you Google data PPF, I'll put the link in the show notes as well. You'll, you'll find it because there are accompanying Jupyter and Colab notebooks where you can do a bunch of computation around the types of things we'll discuss today as well. The other thing that came to mind as you're both speaking is I think we, and this is a through line throughout Throughout your book and throughout your work, we live in an age where we've almost blindly accepted that things are data-driven and haven't even considered that there are counterfactuals which could have, have happened. And this is, I suppose, one aspect of what you'd call and what you do call technological de determinism, the fact that this is where we've ended up, but it seems like the only place we could have ended up. But we don't necessarily talk enough about the fact that we tend to value and prescribe value to data and algorithms is a reflection of our values as a, as a society. And that actually reminds me of another wonderful collaboration that has been somewhat zeitgeisty recently. Have either of you read The Dawn of Everything? Graeber yeah. and, and, and yeah, Wengro? I'm a big fan. Yeah. yeah. Big. And, and one of the big, one of my big takeaways from all of Graeber's work is to really consider the relationship between what we prescribe value to and what, and like in terms of monetary value and what we actually value as, as a society. And the fact that, you know, this is incredibly timely, right? We've got up there at Times Square, we've got the actors coming out daily, right? We've got the, the SAG strikes. We've got writer strikes. We have Netflix putting job listings up for machine learning product managers for $900,000 annual salary, right? So the fact that we're collectively, or there is a collective prescription of serious value to algorithms, to this skill set, to STEM, I think is not only worth interrogating, but we wouldn't be, we almost have, I'd hate to use the word should or responsibility. And we'll get to the word should when we come to a discussion of ethics. But I'm wondering if you, to this end, you opened the book talking about the stakes of it. Your first chapter is called The Stakes of Everything We're, we're, we're Talking About Here. So I've set some some of the stakes, but maybe you can tell us why this is this is important. Why you spent so much time writing this book and, and and this course as well? What are the stakes? So certainly, when we started writing the book and developing the class in 2017, the first time we taught the class was 2017. It was a time when a lot of students were starting to realize the impact of algorithmic decision systems on their world. So within the community of people who follow, like science and technology studies, the STS community, there are certainly many academics who had been pointing out, you know, maybe we should think twice about, you know, taking all of the most important aspects of our society and putting it on top of machine learning and seeing what happens. Maybe we should think twice about, twice about handing over control of so many civic functions to private corporations that are maximizing profit. But in general, population that wasn't nearly as prominent a dialogue until around that time. And so 
we felt like it was useful to open up with like, why is now a good time for a history of data? Why is now a good time to really think about the root causes of how we got there? Thinking about history, we claim, is useful also for making the present strange. So as you were invoking the idea of the fallacy of technological determinism, part of the utility of history is to say, you know, it hasn't been that way forever and related. It doesn't have to be that way now. There's an intellectual use to history there in making the present strange by saying it doesn't have to be that way because it could easily have been some other way if any one of these chance events hadn't happened. But the other thing that the book tries to argue is it doesn't have to be that way because the people who are arguing that it does have to be that way are usually people who benefit from the world being that Big vested interests, yeah. Yeah. So part yeah, of the story I, of the book is truth and part of the story of the book is power. To pick up on what both of you are saying, you, you set us up beautifully because the idea of technological determinism is it, it makes it appear as if it's necessary that we should have the kind of value changes you're talking about. And those value changes happen both in the domain of knowledge that we're no longer going to pursue, say, knowledge that looked like physics. We're going to do something that's much more empirical and algorithmic driven, but also the values of what it is that we accept in employment and who it is to be, whose points of view are to be valued and who's valued in the employment. So if you start removing the, the, the fallacy of technological determinism, you recognize the moments in which those values are contested, then the way in which people come to what appears to be a consensus, and then they hide the fact that the, this work has been done, that there are certain people who benefit from certain visions of what values matter. Absolutely. And I think that's a lovely point because that dovetails really nicely in, we're talking about data today, right? And as you both know well, data comes from the Latin verb dare, to give. And I can't remember my college Latin, whether it's a gerund or gerundive, but data is that which is given, which makes it seem like it's something handed down from, from Mount Olympus or the heavens. I'm, I'm mixing my ancient civilizations here. <laughs> but actually, a, a good friend of mine, Cassie Kozakov, who's chief decision scientist at Google, her Twitter handle is Quasita, which is that which is sought, not that which is given. And so I'd like to hear from you two to unpack kind of the biases that data has in light of the fact that we're told it's something which I suppose should be un uncontested because it's given to us and represents ground truth, quote, quote unquote, in some way. So a way we do this with students, instead of being sort of heavy handed about this, and I can right now give you a long lecture on exactly the, 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 the transformation in the word data and what happens in the 18th century. But we have them jump into a collection of data sets. The machine learners in the audience will know this Irvine machine. And, and they pick a data set and they start thinking about what is the genesis of this data set? Where did it come from? It is mm -hmm. not, in fact, mana handed down from heaven. So they always pick like the most bizarre data sets. There's one about horse colic and other sorts of things. And they come to realize, yeah, there's a number and that number is associated with a clinical diagnosis by a veterinarian. Wait a sec, that's not mana from heaven. That's someone's decision-making processes turned into you know, a 10-point scale or something. And so the students begin excavating the fact that data is a profoundly human-made thing. It's not just a sort of given kind of thing. And those biases can come in all kinds of ways, right? It could simply be that your instruments are biased, or it could be a sort of broader sense of the bias that you you might sort of bring into it. And the point is not that there's the, the point is very much that to get at that artifactual quality of data and then have a serious conversation about why is it that we 
ascribe data such a value in our society, both positively and negatively. That is the centrality, say, in thinking about how it is that we come to have confidence in certain medicines and not others. Well, that is a profoundly data-driven enterprise. And most of us, I think, think that's a good idea. So we want to have a sort of balanced conversation that recognizes the artificiality of it, but then moves from there, doesn't hide it. Mm, Fantastic. Chris, do you have anything to add there? Oh, only to add that when somebody says, oh, this is given to me, it doesn't invite critique, right? Somebody says, given... It's rhetorically, it's like, well, this is the data. They were given to me. I don't really have a critique of where they came from beyond that. So as, as Matt was saying, the exercise that we do with the students where you actually download some UCI data sets, you successfully get your hands on a CSV, and so you get a bunch of numbers, and then you look at the ancillary metadata, and you're like, wow, there's a bunch of ridiculous subjective design choices went into the creation of the C- CSV. There's nothing sacred about this data set whatsoever. It involves all sorts of subjective human choices. That sort of critique is, I think, not invited by the word uh, even, as though somebody just gave it to me and that's the end of my critique. Actually, by the way, another etymologically fun thing is some people like to refer to capta, which are the data that are captured, taken, rather than given to because because a lot of the data that you know companies or colonizers are putting to work throughout history is data that were clearly captured rather than given to them. I like how close that is to capture as well. The capture yeah. that we're forced to... And the other capture. Sorry, my mind's going in, in, in several different directions. You mentioned briefly, and this is a, a through line in, in, in your book, state power, but also all different t- types of power structures. And the history of data is also a history of coercion in, in a lot of ways. And to this point, what we're discussing, I mean, when I started working in biology, a lot of my colleagues were using a cell line called healer cells, which come from an African-American woman called Henrietta Lacks, who did not give consent for her cells to, to be used. And it's still an ongoing question of how her, her family will be, what will happen there. Similarly, the history of facial recognition is deeply tied into Kodak technology and the development of what are called Shirley cards, where the technology was built in order to in order to take photos and present beautiful photos of, of white women. And then there were other races races in, in there. But I but I think, and this is a through line for your book, in your book, the history of how data is used incredibly racist ways as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people took the technologies of the day and immediately thought, how are we going to use these technologies for making society better? So we spent a lot of time about the Victorian England program in which a lot of what became mathematical statistics was developed and the people who were putting data to work and, and what would become statistics to work were thinking not just about how to make the state great, but how to make society great. And that ended up really being the basis for what went on to become a lot of mathematical statistics. And we, in retrospect, with with a hundred years separation, look back and say, okay, well, that's, that's obviously bad stuff. As we detail in the book, the person who gave us the word correlation and regression is also the person who gave us the word eugenics. But what we try to say in the book is, at the time, these people thought of themselves as very progressive. You know, they thought that they were just trying to make society better. And that's part of the, the ethical lesson is how do we now, 100 years later, other than our own you know, biases, how do we know that we are doing things in a way that's really to the good? How do we think about the way we're putting data to work? Yeah, and we want people to think, you know, it's not just that shifts in power are necessarily connected to negative things. It's also connected to many positive things. When you introduce new ways of knowing and acting on the world, 
it changes who has capabilities. And many of the stories we tell are profoundly, deeply negative ones because the capabilities become increasingly powerful. But so we want people to have a way of thinking about what happens in their organization, their schools, their universities. When there is a transformation in the way people approach the world, decision-making is made. Those are transformations in power for good and often for bad. Yeah, we also absolutely. wanted to talk about things that were true but unknown. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you compared our, group, our book to anything but David Graeber. <laughs> One thing that I, I think is similar to David Graeber, Graeber's work is how much of his work is looking at histories that everybody just sort of believes to be true and the extent to which you actually look at the historical record and like, actually, that's, that's not the way things happened at all, which I think is very instructive. Yeah. His book that did that for me the most was the wonderful title of, of Debt, The First yeah, 5,000 Years, 5, years yeah. um, pretty, where he turns forward. on its head this idea that, you know, we think money came from bartering and these types of things, but that's absolutely un, un, unfounded. And he demonstrates a lot of evidence, incredibly generative work. And I don't necessarily believe all, at all, but turns it on his head to generate this idea of transactions and money actually stemming from debt, debt relations. For those who are very interested in thinking about data, technology, and, and race, definitely check out Chris and Matthew's book. Also check out Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology and everything she's worked on, among other people as well. I'd, I want to jump into the Age of Reason in a second, but I think it'd be good just to step back. And if you wouldn't mind giving a brief sense of the time periods your book covers, and then we can dive into each, each, each section accordingly. I like to think of it as starting with 1770, the present day. I, I like 1770 because that's when the word statistics enters the English language. Matt, as a historian, has a better sense for I, than I for what are the fights that we're jumping into at that time. Yeah, so the first part of the book is very much from this late 18th century moment. And to set the scene, you've got in physics, a new kind of physics, the physics of Newton, connected to all sorts of observation that is producing the best predictive observations, predictive predictions anyone has ever produced and comes to have this incredible prestige in a way that the sciences as we think of them have never had before. So we begin the book there to talk about this moment a sort of a, a, a well over a hundred year period in which people are creating all kinds of new statistical things. And in many cases, they're not really getting traction. They want to change the world with them. But it's not really until the 20th century that, that you have these pretty dramatic transformations in the way economics works or medicine or other sorts of domains. So the beginning of the book stretches in this period where the statistics and, 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 and a data-driven approach are much more associated with this group of mathematicians and other sorts of people aiming to improve the world. The second half of the book takes on data as much more a kind of engineering problem. And we really, that takes off in the middle of World War II, in which code breaking, but code breaking that's heavily data-based and is based on the use of things like Bayesian algorithms really transforms certain ways of conducting war. And we argue sets the ground for a, a very much an engineering approach to doing data at incredible scale with large teams of labor and ever greater machines. Where would you take it from there, Chris? Well, I do like the connection to Bayesian, certainly. The other thing I would say is that there's fights. So it's fun to start. You don't want to start a history book when there's just like everybody's agreeing on what is. Yeah. It's nice to start a history book when there's some substantive fights. So we, so we take 
pains to take, for example, this fight in 1806 about the word statistics and the use of data. So today we think of the word statistics as being about mathematics and data, but not at all. So when the word statistics enters the English language, it's about statecraft. It's about the science of running the state. And so we have this nice passage from 1806 with statisticians deriding the use of tables, tables of numbers, and trying to understand different countries. Those people who do so are derided as table makers or vulgar statisticians, whereas the high statistics is understanding the greatness of the men who run the country and things like that. So it's fun to start at a point where the use of data is being contested. And that certainly I saw when I was, a you know, working with biologists in the late 90s, there were plenty of fights about whether or not we should be trying to use statistical techniques and, you know, lots of sequence data or functional genomics data and whatnot. Whereas we had, you know, hundreds of years of understanding molecular biology in a particular way, you know, why should data and why should statistical approaches have an equal seat at the table with the other ways that we had come to understand the world, I might say epistemic virtues and ways of knowing. Yeah, and then we, you know, the third part of the book is very much how do we get machine learning and data science? And we begin by telling the story of artificial intelligence when it wanted nothing to do with data, in which data was a kind of dirty domain that maybe engineers dealt with, but not computer scientists, and was lavishly funded. And we tell the story of how that changed. How did that change? And then how did it become integrated into business models, into modes of of scientific analysis? And how did and thus it moves us fully into the realm of the histories of business of the economy and histories of privacy and we end the book with some thoughts not about exactly what is it we're supposed to do but rather how are do we think this historical approach equips readers to be more engaged citizens in the conversations we're having fantastic well i'm i'm more than excited to jump into all of these and get to a point where we can, one little teaser for where I'd like to get to is we, I mean, today AI is synonymous with machine learning, if not deep, deep learning. And there are far more expansive worldviews of what AI can and would be. You talk about a lot of them in, in your book. There's a wonderful essay by Michael I. Jordan, who I like to call the, the Michael Jordan of machine learning, both literally and figuratively right. in the inaugural edition of the Harvard Data Science Review, which I understand Chris is, or at least was on the editorial committee of. I, I believe was. <laughs> in which he, he, he takes expansive ideas about why aren't we building AI that can mimic, you know, the intelligence of markets, for, for example. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of different visions of what AI can, can actually be. So this is the type of place I'd like to get. But we need to go back in time, which is something that I very much appreciate about all the work you've done together and can continue to do. And I'd like for you to tell me about something that we, we now lovingly refer to as, as social physics. Right. So part of the transition in the 19th century was not only fighting about whether or not data should have a seat at the table, but as Matt was intimating, you know, there were all of these advances in understanding the world through observations, including Gauss and others developing minimizing sum of squared errors in order to learn what is true, like the true position of a planet, for example. So if a number of people make noisy measurements of some astronomical observation, you would expect that those observations are, the individual recordings are sort of noisy versions of the truth. And so the average value, the average value should tell you something true and transcendent. And every individual observation is merely a, a noisy version of what is what is the truth. And so can I we stop, st- stop you there? Please? That, Absolutely. Th- this is an example in which there it's more obvious that there is something true, right? That this Correct. thing does have a position. And this is, Correct. 
Perhaps I meant for what we can say there's three-dimensional space and something exists there. And so we are getting something that corresponds to ground truth in the physics example. That's exactly right. We believe that there is some objective thing. And one of the first examples of somebody saying, okay, well, let's take this awesome technology that works in this context and use it for some other domain that's more important is the astronomer Adolf Kedlay, who took those techniques and said, okay, well, why don't we apply them to something really important like society? And so he said, let's take celestial mechanics, which is, you know, a proven success and, and, you know, as Matt would say, very prestigious at the time. And let's take celestial mechanics and simply apply it to social mechanics, or as we usually translate it into English, social physics. So the idea there was simply to just run those two words together, social and physics, because physics was seen as the supreme way of understanding natural phenomena at the time, and do for society what we had done for celestial phenomena. And to be clear, there were a couple of reasons for him to see some reminiscences, including the curve itself, the, the, the distribution of errors you get, which we now think of as the normal distribution, because it's pretty normal to see that distribution. Hedley saw when he observed various phenomena about human beings, and because he saw something that was reminded him, that was reminiscent of the same curve, he said there must be something true. There must be a true average man, and that with every other man is some sort of noisy, corrupted copy of that true average man. So that attempt by Hedley to impose mindset of celestial mechanics and the methods and the successes successes of celestial mechanics onto understanding society was the field that he came to call social physics. And it had a big impact, as, as Matt was saying earlier, in England in particular among Victorian thinkers that we could use quantitative methods to improve society and to preserve the greatness of the Victorian empire. Yeah, both to understand society as something that's distinct from mere individuals and that phenomena like suicide or divorce or crime was something that we would characterize not as personal moral faults or something like that, but rather something that has a quantitative shape. So on the one hand, it opens the door to what we would see as a wide range of quantitative fields that have made like something like society or economy thinkable. And on the other hand, it really opened the door to well, this was something that then could be shaped or manipulated or transformed. And the, the people doing it, calling for those transformations rather than, say, being political philosophers or biblical scholars or other sources of authority, would be instead people who are quantitatively charged. And so it's that dual heritage that's so crucial. Kelly didn't get this in his lifetime. He wanted it, but it became a model that is incredibly important. And then the results of some version of it, of course, are central to the 20th as well, indeed, in our own century. Absolutely. And I mean, the age of algorithms, although we don't really call it social physics, a lot of what tech does, for example, is predicated on certain you know, philosophical ideas of, of social physics. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and conceptions of what it is a human is like, you know, what is it that we value, how do we act, are all often huge tacit assumptions in all kinds of tech. Yeah. So not only is it not clear whether social physics is like represents ground truth, or perhaps it's clear in a lot of ways that it, that it doesn't, but I suppose we can all agree that it's reductive and reductive things can be good. I mean, we know, you know, George Box said all models are wrong. Some are useful. And most of us these days add to that many are harmful. And so these models of so social physics, this reductive approach can be useful in some ways, but I mean, it's an important question and question, perhaps not explicitly in, in your book, but a through line once again, what is lost 
And as humanists, what is lost when we reduce humans to distributions and, and numbers and then have, you know, the tech and software and architecture and devices which allow them to be quote unquote manipulated? And I think one of the real challenges is how do you tell that in a way that's not purely nostalgic? And so when we begin the book with this debate between the old statistician, the vulgar statisticians who are using numbers, it really is a debate between people like to know a country is to know its literature and its great men, as opposed to say a quantitative approach. And there's still going to be a lot of division on that kind of question, but nostalgia doesn't help us deal with that. Now, that is to say, if we're going to think about that question of what is to be lost, then how are we going to recover those modes of what it is that we care about? And you had mentioned, you know, the writers, writer strike. I mean, that's a that is a, a fundamental question where deep question, philosophical, but also fundamental economic questions about the nature of creativity are at issue. And we don't need to be nostalgic about that. We don't have to have a technological determinist narrative to be able to analyze that, I think, in sharper ways that really bring forth both the challenges of knowledge, the challenges of assumptions about the human, and the nature of the kind of society we want to live in. Absolutely. Something you mentioned earlier, Chris, which I think is one of the, the next steps here, is the development of a lot of statistical techniques, in particular, those developed by Francis Galton, who I, I think you know, people often introduce him as Charles Darwin's cousin. I like to refer to Charles Darwin as Francis Galton's cousin. <laughs> I think Galton has, has had such an outsized influence on a, a lot of our world. He created our modern, well, the terms correlation, created reg regression, and the term eugenics as well. So perhaps both of you can tell our audience how these three things are, are related, in particular with reference to Galton and his work. Yeah, so Galton, as mentioned, was a distant cousin of Charles Darwin. I think Galton's more likely to go around telling people that he's Charles Darwin's cousin than the other way around, but that's, <laughs> that's for biographer, biographers to investigate. Galton was spent a lot of his early career as a gentleman scientist interested in how it came to pass that certain families were so great. So you could imagine that one of his favorite subjects was himself and his family and why they were so awesome. So he would do things like publish papers with just lists of great families and their accomplishments and try to quantify what was it about this family that made them great. Like the Adams family, there were two presidents, right? So, you know, he would go through and try to find, you know, records from antiquity of like other families that were quite notable. Eventually, his desire to quantify everything got to thinking about, well, how do we relate the greatness of a parent to the greatness of his offspring or that are offspring for any parent? Now, you can't easily quantify how great people are. And in fact, that over later chapters, we saw how people tried to define intelligence in terms of some measurable quantity of how smart you are. But you can measure height. So he published some papers looking at the height of parents and the height of children with, for him, a, a depressing result, but he probably should have noticed that if you just look at the scatter plot of how high is the parent, how tall is the parent and how tall is the, ch the child, you'll see this regression in their height to a, a more average Height, right? But that's, that's where you really have to get. And the slope of that, he called the regression coefficient as the children regress to a, a more, more mean height, even though their parents are quite tall and quite great. So something easy to measure, like height, was used as a proxy for something what he's really interested in, which was the greatness of, or the worth, the genetic worth in later writing of these families. That all played into his interest in eugenics and how we could use the ideas of his cousin Charles, which were all about the relationship between fitness, meaning the number of viable offspring you have, and genetic determinants 
to how we should as a society, and again, getting back to this greatness of the Victorian empire, maintain the greatness of the Victorian empire by making sure that great people were fit in the Darwinian sense of fitness. They were having many viable offspring. That had a huge impact on thinkers of, of the time. And a lot of people that, we again, we look back and, and look at their writing and they describe themselves as very progressive people who were trying to make society great. We're very interested in a cause and a series of scholarly meetings and journals that we now just do not talk about, right? Like nobody talks about the fact that Biometrica was, you know, a, a journal about eugenics at one point, mm. but it played directly into the development of mathematical statistics. So that's a lot of what goes on in, um, in chapter three of the book before math- uh, statistics as a cause starts getting used for very applied and also monetary purposes in the personage of Guinness. So the beer maker, Guinness, starts using statistics and a lot of the same methods get used to make better and more profitable beer. And then countries who see their wealth as being dictated by agricultural greatness and the ability to produce lots of viable food also start putting statistics to work for trying to understand what's going to be useful in the context of agriculture. And this is a really important point with respect to Guinness and Gossett, is it? Student? As we, yeah. as it, he, he's, he's forced to publish under a pseudonym and his, his pseudonym is, is student because he sees himself as a, a student of Elder Pearson, Carl Pearson, rather than Egon Pearson, the younger Pearson. Yeah. And of course, for those, those listening, he came up with students T-test, which many would argue, and I'm one of them is, has been overused of, in, yes. in, at least in the past half century. But I, I think a, a very key point here is this was, these techniques were developed for industrial purposes on specific timelines. So in what, when we think about data science now, there are many ways to slice what, what, what data science is, but, but one way is as opposed to ac- academic, the academic sciences, it's driven by industrial needs on a timeline and we have to get things done right now. And so this is one of kind of the, the first really serious examples of that type of stuff, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we, we want, we, we tell a story of how those, that kind of testing, which is a radically new way of thinking about how do you make decisions, right? Mm. It builds on this, you know, burgeoning statistical science, but it answers questions to say, we, we, how do we make decisions under uncertainty and gives an answer that is, you know, not perfect truth. The whole point is you don't have perfect truth and you've got a, a profit motive. You're, you can't spend, you can't plant barley for the next 25 years before you make a decision. No boss of Guinness is going to let you do that. Mm. But that develops and then it gets taken up by people who are heavily mathematically inclined. And so from the beginning, it explodes as a way of thinking about industrial practice, but then it also takes on a second life in a much more mathematical a way when it's a conception of concerns about truth. And there comes to be a sort of very vibrant fight where the terms can be see sort of seem strange and philosophical about the nature of statistical knowledge, but is really fundamentally a question of what is it it is to do statistics? Is it about decision making or is it about sort of really finding truth in this sort of thing? And that that bifurcation actually is central to the development of, of mathematical statistics in the 20th century. And then in a longer story to the development of the sort of data-driven sciences focused often on industrial processes and other kinds of very much profit-driven things. So from very early on, we see that kind of bifurcation in some of our favorite stories. It's a great yeah, point. Fantastic. Yeah, I forgot that one of, one of the points of the book, it's great to hear Matt talk about the book. It reminds me of 
I'm excited to read the book. I've never heard my book. So, so, part, so part of the, one of the three lines is the difference between what is true and what is it that we want to do. So what is true is, was an interest for Galton and for generally scientists that are putting to work data. But what do we do was actually a much more of interest in, in for decision making. And decision making was the core concern of Gossett, aka student. And so that's true for the industrial concerns, but also true for the martial, the military concerns, which show up when we talk about data at war. In chapter six, we bring the reader to Bletchley Park and get to the idea of putting data to work for the creation of special purpose hardware, namely digital computers for solving data problems. That was not at all trying to use data to understand what is true. It was actually a decision problem. People had decisions to make. Well, I would love to travel to wartime Bletchley Park with you both and also with a view to discuss another bifurcation. We've been talking about frequentist techniques and Bletchley Park used Bayesian techniques. So perhaps you could give an introduction to what was happening at Bletchley Park and we can kind of have a conversation around those points. So Bletchley Park was the headquarters in the UK of the code-breaking effort. So it was sort of a, a secret location in the middle of nowhere, like directly between Cambridge and Oxford with no good train lines. So you, you couldn't get there from, from the other but it was easy to find certain many academic people. But the other thing is it was not populated by mathematical statisticians. There were not that many mathematical statisticians at the time, but those who were, were not at Bletchley Park. So the people who were being brought to Bletchley Park were puzzle solvers and people who knew lots of languages and whatever you would call comparing, because there wasn't computer science at the time, but the mathematician and eventual computer scientist, Alan Turing, was one of the people who was there. The techniques that won the day there were special purpose hardware. And in fact, this is a, and getting back to this point about David Graeber, how there's histories that we all know, and then there's what actually happened. This sort of myth of Alan Turing sort of coming up with the idea that we need to create special purpose devices to simulate the German Enigma machine. Again, that's, that itself is a story which was not known for many years until after the war. And so in retrospect, we look at it and say, okay, well, that was the birth of digital computation. But I'd like to take that back to actually Poland, because it was actually Polish mathematicians who, really in the process of running away from the Nazis successfully invading Poland, met with representatives from France and the UK and explained to them how to build special purpose hardware to break the German codes. I trace a lot of data science back, if I may, through that very thin lineage, because it was a messy, real-world streaming data problem for which you needed to build special purpose hardware. And that you know, certainly sounds like a lot of modern data science problems today. Real-time streaming data, and you have to solve it using whatever method works. Again, there's a lot of popular focus on Turing, and Turing did a lot of amazing things. And one of the things, because he wasn't trained as a statistician, he wasn't caught up in certain mathematical niceties. But the flip side of that is that this was truly an industrial sort of process. Mm -hmm. And that's crucial, and it involved tons of dirty machines that barely work, and teams of largely women who made them work in conjunction with this pretty amazing array of, of people who then would seed all kinds of wonderful things in, 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 in British academic and other things subsequent to the war. But it's, it's in, one of the reasons I think the story is important is you have that combination of transformations and algorithmic approach, production of, lar of, of large amounts of data, and industrial scope that requires lots of labor. That rhymes a lot with the concerns we have today. So when we talk about a large language model, we ought to be talking, as a bunch of people have been recently, about you know who are the people, say, in Kenya that are doing a lot of the labor that makes the reinforcement learning or something going on. So 
it's both an important bit of the genesis of the data sciences, but it also helps us analytically think through our own moment. Absolutely. And I don't think they do it anymore, but when speaking of how, you know, big tech, quote unquote, does their best to obfuscate the human labor behind a lot of the work that's done, they don't do it anymore, but Mechanical Turk used to market themselves as artificial, artificial intelligence, <laughs> which I, yes. I think is deeply cynical in a number of ways. Yes. And now that those Mechanical Turk challenges are being solved by large language models, we have artificial, artificial, artificial intelligence. This is, I mean, where, you know, the maze has no center. That's right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the gendered nature of the labor at Bletchley Park. Tell me a bit about how that has actually propagated from then until now. I mean, it, that hasn't necessarily changed, right? Correct. So it's a good story. And I think like many things, it's it's a story not to say, oh man, how bad things were there, but to say like, wow, it is amazing how hardwired it is in people that as soon as you have labor, that labor gets gendered. So in this mm -hmm. case, there was work to be done, right? So as soon as it was realized that the way we were going to break a bunch of we, the way they were going to break was a bunch of German codes was to build special purpose hardware that was effectively going to do a very fast heuristic search through all the possible settings of the German rotors on their encoding machines. It was realized it was a very labor intensive process. And so immediately it was decided by the people in charge, read men, which parts of that task were going to be for the men and which parts were going to be the women. This is a story well told. And a couple of great books, if you want to read, Mar Hicks has a great book about the development of computer science, mostly in the UK. Janet Abbott has a great book about, on both sides of the Atlantic, the way that computation was immediately associated with labor and that labor was immediately gendered. So basically, women were running all of the machines. Men were expected to do calculations. Because they were expected to do differently, they were assigned different physical conditions and physical expectations like running drills around Bletchley Park was reserved for the women who then, you know, were fatigued and not able to do the work. They were given different job, job titles with different promotion uh, career ladders. So it was like immediately gendered. And we looked at them and they, you know, it didn't take, you know, very many weeks for them to go from understanding they needed to do labor to deciding which was going to be women's work and which was not. And you certainly see it today in the the gendering of, of computer science, you can look at the charts of the number of percentage of computer scientists from different genders and see that it's, it, you know, it's, it, it moves quite a bit over time with no, you know, logic in terms of the ideas being generated. Matthew, is there anything you'd like to add? There? Yeah, I mean, so as Chris said, this is a story that a lot of people have worked on, really wonderful historians of computing. And it's very much salient to the moment today. And it's often a confusing situation that we don't deal with this too much in the book, but there's actually a greater amount of women involved in, in computing in the United States well into the 70s. But the, in the beginning of the explosion of PCs and other things, it coincides with a sort of massive decline. Things look very different in other parts of the world where you have a much different sort of gender story, particularly in IT in India. So, but... Again, the, one of the striking things about Bletchley Park is how quickly that labor gets forgotten when you have sort of really successful products that they either, in the case of Bletchley Park, of course, it was obfuscated entirely by secrecy, but many of the men that we were talking about went and had careers in the sort of open world and became extremely well-known. And the women actually stayed mum until, in many cases, at the very end of their life, a few historians were able to do interviews and things like that. That process repeats itself often. 
in which labor is typically becomes apparent when there's a problem and often not apparent when there is no sorts of problems. So again, it's something we advance in part because it enables you to look around and, and look for labor in the processes that enable the things we really love and things that really are disturbing in equal measure. Yeah, great. And I, I hope we come back to kind of the gig economy and labor in tech and who creates value and who obfuscates who creates value. But I do want to mention there's, a, there's a, I mean, ghost work that you talk about in, in your book by Mary Gray. And I apologize, I can't remember her wonderful co-author's name. Um, Sid Surrey. Yeah, exactly. Is a, is a wonderful and very challenging book about the gig economy that underlies a lot of what we consider AI. There's also a book called Custodians of the Internet by a guy, Tarleton Gillespie, who... Tarleton Gillespie, yeah. Yeah, and he, I think he came out of UC Davis, the same department that Mary Gray and Fred Turner, I mean, this department, like, produced some of the great minds as far as, far as I'm, I'm concerned. But he has a chapter on the hidden labor force behind a lot of social social media and how social media has deep incentives to make us think that AI is doing doing a lot of lot of the work because they want to be well. There's a lot of speculation and money behind behind AI. But I mention this because he has one. He's a beautiful writer, but he has one sentence that I love so much. It's platforms dream of electric shepherds, <laughs> which I think is is fantastic. Before we get to the age of algorithms, maybe you can tell me a bit about, because we've got a technical audience today, a bit about Bayes. It's about Bayes, how it was used at Bletchley. There, so part of the story about Bletchley is, as I was trying, I was getting to this before and I managed to distract myself. So the people who were at Bletchley Park were not coming from the two fighting camps of the day. So mm. there was a, we, in the story of how mathematical statistics develop, we tell the story of Fisher, R.A. Fisher, who's, who's well known to many people in statistics, and Jersey Naiman. And when we teach undergraduates today, majoring, majoring in statistics or majoring in other fields that use statistics, we teach them this sort of hybrid synthesis of Fisher's approach and Naiman's approach. Naaman was interested in making decisions. He was not so interested in models or what's true. Fisher was simply interested in saying, what's the probability I would have gotten this result by chance rather than under some particular manipulation? And the probability of getting this result given that there was actually nothing happening is Fisher's mm-hmm. type of error. And as opposed to the probability of getting this result under a model that I hypothesized, which was the type of error that Naaman was investigating and wanted to combine those two, Fisher would have found that anathema. So we spend some time in the book talking about how the two of them just fight with each other for like 50 years. They actually published mm. papers, you know, a 50-year retrospective of us fighting with each other. They hated each other, but the only thing they hated more than each other was Bayesianism. So the idea of yeah. Bayesianism is, is that what a rude word. Yeah. So the idea of Bayesianism is that it's easy in most statistical models to write down what is the probability of the data conditioned on some model of the world. For example, the data are generated by flipping a coin or something like that. But what you really want is you want to know what's the probability that the data, that, uh, that this is true, that the world actually was represented by flipping a coin. That is, you have the probability of the data given the model. That's a function called the likelihood. It's easy to write down for most models. But what you really want to know is What's the probability that that model is the truth? And in order to flip that conditional, you can just follow the algebra from the definition of conditional distribution. You need to have the probability that the model is true, which is called the prior. And that is a thing that you do not have access to a priori, right? So unless you have some prior belief about whether 
let's say, you know, pig manure or cow manure, which was the concern of of R.A. Fisher when he was looking at agriculture, is the better of the two ways of treating a field. You have no way of saying what's the probability that cow manure is, is the better, right? You only have the probability of the data you observe, given that cow manure is the better of the two possible approaches. So to invert that, you need to be able to quantify your prior belief that something is true. And we spent a little bit of the time in the book talking about how this is related to God. So Bayes was a reverend, and so Bayes was interested in this debate that was happening, the probability of Christ's resurrection, given that we have one of these reported miracles. He was debated by Hume, and it was one of the things that Bayes was interested in, but he never published his essay. So he writes this essay, and he writes it Mm. in a very dry way. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about theological matters. Then he dies. His friend Price finds the essay and publishes it after his death. And that is why we think of as the equation that allows us to talk about the probability that the model is true given the data as Bayes' theorem and all things related to that as Bayesian. So anyways, at Blessed Park, they didn't know about the fight. They were doing whatever it was going to take to get the, the job done. There's a moment when I.J. Good is talking to Alan Turing and says, are you using Bayes' theorem? And Turing allegedly says, I suppose so, sort of a very non-committal answer. Yeah. You know, they didn't, they didn't, when they weren't steeped in this big fight between Naaman and Fisher, they were doing whatever technique works. Well, I would bring that back to Matthew's point, and I'm projecting all types of my internal biases here. As I joked earlier, I'm probably a Bayesian, and what I mean by I'm, a, I'm probably a, ra- a rabid Bayesian, mm. to be honest. But if, if you build things up from first principles, which Turing did a lot of the time, often you arrive at Bayesian techniques. And I just side note, like people know a lot of different impacts Turing had on a variety of fields, but um, Chris, of course, still works in biology. Is that is that correct? You're still yep. active? Yeah. Sure. So when I was young, I learned about Turing via Turing instability and Turing patterns. Exactly. His paper on morphogenesis is beautiful. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it was only later that I found out that that was one of his like, Sunset Salvo papers, and he actually did like all of these other very important things that most other people know Turing. Yeah. Right. And I was but, trained as a mathematician, so I learned a very different Turing. The altogether. Turing type? The Turing tape, yeah. Because yeah. I you know, because I was doing mathematical logic. And I think one of the, you know, Bayes was this terrible bad word. It wasn't just that Fisher and Neyman hated it. It was the thing to hate for most of academic stat- statistics through the 20th century. And there were various people who talked about So one of the things that we we discovered is people knew that Turing had become sort of was Bayesian friendly, even if he didn't know what it was by name. But we discovered that the NSA, the National Security Agency, and other places in communications intelligence, which were doing very classified work, remained hotbeds of Bayesianism throughout the Cold War War period. So while academia was adamantly anti-Bayes, in intelligence quarters, Bayes was what was used all the time. And in fact, they have learned, on the one hand, they're like, we don't know what it's called. There's this Bayes guy, I think. And on the other hand, they have footnotes. They're like, well, we don't care about this prior. This doesn't worry us. It worries some statisticians. It, for our work, does not matter. And we're Mm -hmm. just going to move on. And the people who then become major apostles of Bayes and that are usually anathematized throughout the 20th century often had sort of connections with the intelligence world, like good. And so they found ways to sort of take the gospel of Bayes out of intelligence and cast it into another domain. So good does this with biology and other sorts of things. So we're able to track this this world in which there's a sort of underworld of data-driven industrial Bayesian analysis, largely in the classified world. And it pokes out in various places in yeah. industrial statistics, in academic statistics, in the philosophy of science, before it gains the prominence that it gains in the last 
30 years, 30, 40 years, maybe. But you're exactly well, right, Hugo. It, it follows just from the laws of probability. For example, you can write down what's the probability that you test positive on the COVID test, given that you have COVID. But you, what you really want to know is, do I have COVID? What's the probability I have COVID? That's a, a, an example that we talked through in the book about. You actually want to invert that probability. You're using Bayes' rule. Exactly. And it's actually quite counterintuitive. You end up encountering the base rate fallacy, right? And having to correct for that. I am also interested in in academia as well. One of the reasons frequentism was so strong, I mean, and statistical techniques, Fisher was a powerhouse and a wonderful marketer in his own way and kind of like a pretty heavy, heavy hitter, right? Fisher and Naaman both. Yeah, they were both yeah. confident. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, there's another, there's a story. They were both incredibly heavy hitters and, you know, in setting up, helping to set up an academic discipline of statistics modeled not on, say, a data-intensive industrial process, but on mathematics itself. Mm. So right after the war, when the NSF gets founded in the United States, statistics is classified with math. And it doesn't have to be that way. And why was that good? Well, that meant stats would get funding from the NSF because applied sciences didn't. But it had the side effect of turning it into a much more not just academic is the wrong word, but the, if their model is axiomatic mathematics, then your model is not empirical data. So that's a little bit of a, a too big of a brush. But there's also something that I think is important if we're going to get to the history of AI. For much of the middle of the 20th century, despite the explosion of data of all forms of empirical work, the prestige of forms of scientific knowledge that were as based on mathematics as possible, axiomatic mathematics, distant from data. There was a real anti-empirical current that runs through physics, but it also affects many, many disciplines, economics, the axiomatization of, of quantum mechanics, but also when you know Noam Chomsky pushes against behaviorism in linguistics, it's in the name of a kind of anti-empiricism. That has huge prestige that only becomes, in some sense, pushed aside towards the end of the 20th century. It's a little bit of an academic story, a little bit of a philosophical story, but it's a surprising story. So when we talk about AI in the middle of the 20th century, the AI was generally anti-empirical because it was part of a world in which that which was to be emulated was precisely mathematical reasoning or chess playing or things like that. Fantastic. Well, I'm really excited to get there. I do want to make one point to Chris's point about Bayesianism requiring a prior. You're absolutely right. I do think... What it's forcing you to do, though, is to make your assumptions explicit. And in frequentism, there are a lot of assumptions which are actually implicit in the test that you're, you're using. Frequentism done right is wonderful and wonderfully successful. But a lot of the time, you know, when n is equal to three or six in, in, in biology, it can actually be, be very challenging, I think. And another note, I actually, someone, in your acknowledgements of this book, this is pretty subtle, you thank Rob Phillips. Is that Rob Phillips sure. from Cal Caltech? Oh, yeah. Uh, molecular yeah. Biology of the Cell? Yeah. So I used to spend summers with Rob up at Woods Hole at the Marine Biology Lab in Cape Cod teaching stuff, biology Fantastic. stuff, right? And he wants, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase him and misquote him, but he was like, what's up with all of these? Why are we doing statistical tests, Hugo? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, did Newton ever do a statistical test? Did, did Kepler ever do a statistical test? And that is it. That is very on brand because yeah. you, you probably know the two most famous quotes that Ernest Rutherford says about science, right? So one of them is, in science, there is only physics and the rest is stamp collecting. And the other yeah. is, 
if your experiment needs a statistician, you ought to have done a better experiment. So I, as a well-trained theoretical physicist, I was like, I know statistics because I know statistical mechanics. But once I started actually like looking at data, I realized it's not really clear that I know statistics, even though I know what statistical mechanics is. So yeah, I mean, Rob, I mean, Rob and I talk a lot. I talked to him yesterday. But yes, that, that's very on brand for a physicist to say, like, why do we need statistical tests? You just ought to do a better experiment. But is there some truth to that? Why do we need to do all of these statistical tests, like when Newton didn't? One of the lessons that I'd love to hear Matt's take on that, since because he's thought much more than I about the different sciences and how different sciences decide what's true. My sense from, you know, talking, hanging out with a lot of physicists working on biology is physics has done very well. And this is a, another lesson I learned from working with Ray Goldstein on my PhD. Physics has really done really well over the years at declaring things not physics when they become complex. So you make the system very simple and it's physics. When you get to like two atoms interacting with each other or an atom that has two electrons, that's chemistry. An atom that only has one electron, that's physics. We'll study the bejesus out of the hydrogen. As soon as it has two electrons, that's chemistry. Too complex, it doesn't become physics anymore. Then when you start looking at really complex phenomena like you know, whole economies in the real or whole biological systems. You have to decide, how am I going to make sense of this thing? Maybe if you take a single molecule at a time, then you could do it really using the, the understanding of physics. And single molecule biophysics has done that quite a bit. But when you have not just one strand of DNA, but multiple transcription factors, multiple binding on multiple binding sites, which is the kind of thing Rob is, is trying to understand these days, mm -hmm. then you have a mess and you really have to start thinking about how are you going to understand this noisy system using the appropriate mathematics for noise, which is one way of thinking about what statistics is. So like Rob's work involves plenty of statistical modeling because he's looking at, you know, very complex situations where you're looking at a stochastic readout of mRNA coming out of a gene with like a promoter that has different transcription factor binding sites, different transcription factors competing with each other. That has to be looked at statistically, even though for every inter every individual interaction, you have a very mechanistic understanding. I mean, I, I <laughs> say a lot about Newton and Kepler, but one of the things about Newton is that when he writes his book, this is in the you know, 1787. He writes mathematical a book called Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, and it's a it's a riff on a book by Descartes called Principles of Philosophy. And one of the reasons it's so transformative for understanding the sciences, but understanding is that it says if you want to understand the way nature works, you are interested in causes and you're interested in their in their mathematical effects, but you don't need to, in fact, know all the mechanisms in order to have knowledge. So Descartes was in some sense very conservative and said what you need to know to know what nature is and that's natural philosophy of the time, you need to understand mechanism. And Newton says, well, we're not that's something we're not usually going to be capable of. So instead, I'm going to provide you with a whole slew of mathematical techniques that then you can try to figure out which mathematical world we in fact inhabit. And what Newton didn't have, though, was sort of standardized ways of data reduction or of, of comparing those sorts of things. So these were kind of open questions. So on the one hand, Newton is a great paradigm of how it is that what it is that matters in science changes dramatically. And we see this a lot with tussles between, say, chemists who are using a lot of machine learning and more traditionally trained about the salience of mechanism. We're at another moment where that's happening again and again. His book was enormously foundational, but it isn't accidental that people like Laplace and Gauss, many years later, are providing more standardized ways of thinking through data. But they don't have the idea of the test, the, the significance test, really. Yeah, 
is an answer to unresolved questions in physics, but it's not the only answer. And I think that comes back to your question. How is it that these things come to be seen as the answers to knowledge? And when they do, what is it you lose? I really appreciate both those nuanced answers and and both your expertise. Let's move to the age of algorithms, where we are now. So we're with one World War II. What happens then? And how did we get where we are? What's the story? Part of the story, I think Matt intimated earlier, which is the unknown story of the role of the intelligence community in the way we make sense of data. So Matt mentioned the role of the intelligence community in preserving Bayesian analysis, but there's also the role of the intelligence community in building hardware. So a lot of the story of the creation and and marketing of of what we now think of as computers, special purpose digital hardware, programmable digital computers, was funded by the intelligence community. And they would fund the creation of these companies, or they would fund the individual machines. And then when they would move on to the next variant of the machines, the company that built it would have to come up with some sort of way of finding new customers. And so those companies had to create a market for companies, other companies to buy these machines. So, you know, when the IBM is done with the 701 and it's now moved on to the 704, it has to do some like press generating event to convince individual companies that they should have an IBM 701. Now the NSA has moved on to 704. Mm. So they might do something like have a big demonstration of machine learning, right? So these things tie intimately to the creation of computation. So we talk a lot about the story of artificial intelligence, which was one of the products of Bletchley Park, was the creation of the of the field of AI and how almost immediately the field is is shaped as one about mathematics and logic and schema and programming things and not about data. And to be fair, right, it was very difficult. The, you, starting at the Dartmouth workshop? Exactly. So the, the so the phrase the phrase itself, artificial intelligence, comes from a grant proposal by the young mathematician John McCarthy to try to get money from the Rockefeller Foundation to found a workshop in Dartmouth in 1956. So he creates the phrase there and defines it in such a way that that gives an intimation that in his mind, artificial intelligence is going to be about just programming. And he's going to understand human intelligence with such precision that it can be programmed on a computer. So it sort of tilts the stage against the data-driven approach and, and in favor of the logical approach or the, the schema approach. The next story that we have to tell then is how did it come to pass that anybody had enough data that they could even think about a statistical approach? So we spend one chapter about how did it come to pass that people realized that there was value in storing lots and lots of data? And then how did somebody fund that? How did somebody create the technology and the corporations that would be about storing abundant data? That leads us into the rebirth of artificial intelligence with data under the name of, of machine learning. Matt, have I captured part two of the book a bit? Yeah, and so one thing I would add is so a lot, So you have hardware. You have the development of that hardware that allows for mass storage. And so the physicists needed lots of computation, like calculations, but the NSA needed lots of storage. And they, I was just looking, I got a, a CD-ROM from NSA just the other day of some of their early proceedings that they've decided to declassify. So you have a hardware sort of layer, and therefore you have the ability to start recording lots of things in the intelligence world and in the business world, as Chris was intimating, about everyday transactions. Like, this might be useful. We're going to build, start building, you know, reservation systems, but we're also just going to be tracking customers. Governments are doing this in all sorts of other ways. And there comes to be then in the late 60s, a a moment where people become very worried about Big Brother and privacy. And the way it plays out, 
there's a moment in 19, around 1974, sort of right around Watergate, when there's a huge distrust in government for very, very good reasons. A privacy conversation happens in the United States. And a bill is introduced, both houses of Congress, and it says, you know, people ought to have control of their data. And they ought to have control of their data in public settings, the government, and in private settings. Now, the way it plays out is that the U.S. gets a very robust privacy law, but only for government data. And the commercial realm is led, allowed to sort of, to be far less regulated and only to be regulated in certain sectors. Why does this really matter? Because it creates the possibility of there being the large pools of data about individuals that there are very few restrictions on. And this is highly contingent. This didn't have to go down the way it did. There were lots of people who were saying, I know you want to record all this data, Sears. You know, it could be problematic, but it, it comes to seem natural that consumer data should be available for all kinds of purposes. And this data is, in fact, in many ways underused into the 1980s. But then it provides, in many ways, the foundation for the explosion of, of machine learning and data science based on an assumption that, say, consumer data is just out there to be used unless it's in certain quadrants where it's highly regulated. I love that. And I, I mean, that, that formulation, I don't love that. This is how things have played out. A horrible statement that would be. We have identified, I mean, the rise of amounts of data, the rise of compute, the rise of highly sophisticated algorithms. The other thing you point out that not enough people talk about is the rise of what I think David Donahoe has called the, the common task framework. Common task framework. Maybe you can say a bit about that because this is once again one of those reductive processes where we're suddenly optimized, and it makes sense, but this is optimizing for one one particular metric. As we know, when YouTube was optimizing, we can link right, to Shazlow's yeah. work, right? Like, yeah, exactly. And this comes back to 2016 and probably why a lot of your students in 2017 were interested in these types of things. So what is the common task framework and what impact does that then have on the way products are developed and then the impact it has on us as a society? The idea of the common task framework is to take some problem you're interested in and reduce it to optimizing one number. So common task framework it really talks about often scientific competitions where we're interested in trying to figure out what is the right approach. The way we do that is to find one number and then we'll allow different approaches to attempt to maximize that one number. And the one that does the best job wins and is the best way of solving the problem. So I first encountered it in biophysics uh, under the protein prediction problem. So there's a, a competition called CAS, Critical Assessment of Structure Prediction. And every year, different computational approaches would try to predict the fold of some unknown protein. So that's how I first encountered it. But it's more general than that. For example, the Netflix Prize, which we spend some time in the book about, is an example from 2006, is an example where a private company put out a data set and said, we're going to just allow anybody to try to make a better algorithm that will predict what, how, what ranking people will give, how many stars people will give different movies. And the creation, the sharing of a data set and the creation of a high visibility prize really grabbed the attention of a lot of computational scientists to work on that one problem. It's also been useful in computer vision. In many ways, what has made deep learning win in the way that it has won in the last decade was a computer vision competition to label images and the creation of a data, also of a labeled data set that people could test different algorithms on. And at some point, deep learning algorithms started handily beating every other method. And it took everyone by surprise because 
many people in the machine learning community had discounted the potential successes of large neural networks and or neural networks in general. And when extremely large, many-layer neural networks started winning, it really grabbed a lot of people's attention, particularly people who were not interested in understanding what is true, but understanding what is to be done. And again, that gets back to our earlier point about industry that has a job to be done, not a particular interested in modeling the way truth is. Also, industry was able to afford big compute and big data sets and had access to huge data sets about the way people interacted. So common task for framework in general is this idea that for a complex problem, if you can phrase doing well in terms of some computationally evaluated number, a success measure, then it really organizes a whole community around a critical assessment of different methods. Yeah, and I just to underscore a couple things that Chris said and connect it to the other parts of our conversation. We've been talking a lot about sort of different models of what it is to know. Well, a common test framework, you know, has this kind of it could seem outrageous, but it says, well, if you focus all of your energy on optimizing a particular metric, then you collectively as a community have something to work towards. And that's a different valuation of what it is to be science, right? And in many cases, it's inside. On the other hand, it's eminently social. That is, it is a collective vision of knowledge making rather than this genius or that genius. It's really something in which competition over time is supposed to produce something. And Donahoe writes writes about this, but it's worth thinking about how radically different a model that is of scientific inquiry than we'd have if you were it's a story about von Neumann and Fischer and Turing and this kind of thing. And so I think it's a it's it's both extraordinary in how important it's been in the way that science has been reorganized, the way business has been organized, but it also is just interesting to think about how it casts into relief other answers to what it is that knowledge is. And you go, I think you you do a good job tying that somewhat academic notion of a common task framework with the common practice in industry of trying to find some key performance indicator and making that key performance indicator go up. So in the case of Guillaume Chazlot, he's writing about YouTube and the idea that we just wanted people to watch more video. And so any algorithm would be the better algorithm if the users who were exposed to that algorithm spent more minutes on average watching video. So that's an example where somebody takes success, turns it into a key performance indicator, a number. And then that community, in this case, the internal community of YouTube machine learning engineers could test out different algorithms. And the one that drove the human behavior to its largest value would be the winning algorithm. Absolutely. And we're also, yeah, it's important to point out when when we're optimizing for certain things, we're always optimizing Almost, no, I'd say, yeah, well, let me say almost always, it's probably always optimizing for, for proxies of what we, what we really want, right? Absolutely. I think that's incredibly important to, to recognize as well. Proxies and to come back to the earliest part of your conversation about value, right? Mm. It, also may be, it also may be that we don't know what we want or that different people want different things. Like it may be that parents want a different algorithm than say advertisers or the ad sales team in YouTube may want a different thing than, I don't know, the user experience section of YouTube. And those people may want different things than the FTC wants or, you know, con- you know, concerned parents. They may actually all want different things. They, they may have a different opinion about what KPI we should be optimizing. Yeah. As you know, Chris, I've, I've worked in ed tech for some time, educational technology, and we always had questions around, is time on the platform what we should be optimizing for, because it's not obvious to me that it is. Similarly, Slack 
their motto at least used to be where work happens, right? And that's genius, but it's clearly totally untrue. And if they're, if Slack internally is optimizing for time spent on Slack, you're done, right? So we need to be, there's actually Rachel Thomas has a wonderful post. I mean, there's a lot of work on this, but she has a wonderful post that I'll share in the show notes about proxies and the harm that proxies can do when we solely, mm. solely look at them. We've got seven or so minutes left. So let's, in seven or so minutes, let's talk about the future of, of our civilization. Now, I'm interested, I like that you don't talk about the future in terms of necessarily making strong predictions, but um, you take a far more interesting and nuanced approach by talking about how present contests are playing out between between certain powers. So I thought maybe you could speak a bit to that and, and why you took that approach. We wanted our students to end the semester with hope. So, you know, if we start the semester as we did with the stakes and we build on top of, as we mentioned earlier, great books by Ruha Benjamin or Cathy O'Neill or, you know, Sophia Noble or other scholars, and we sort of set out like, there's something wrong on the internet. We don't want to end the semester just being like, there's something really wrong on the internet. And there's lots of, you know, people, you know, making a lot of money by making sure things stay wrong in the internet. We wanted to close with some sort of hope. And so we spent the chapter on the future talking about what are the present contests such that the resolutions of those contests are going to determine the role of automated decision systems in our, our futures. We try to get somewhat analytic because there's many ways of talking about power. So we, we try to be somewhat analytic and say, let's talk about corporate power and state power, but also people power. That is, what are the roles of individuals who, who provide private ordering, to use a, a more scholarly term rather than people power, but the role of individuals in shaping the dynamics of of states and, and companies. So states are important because frequently when you say to somebody, oh, well, this company did something that's an overreach or that violates our, our societal norms or our conceptions of consumer protections, somebody will say, okay, well, the state should go in and fix it. But we wanted to say, well, this, you know, the state is just one locus of power and there's actually many dynamic games there that are constantly playing out. Yeah. And that many of them, there's a kind of lack of purity in our analysis. There isn't like one political organization. The EU is not going to save us all. Or, you know, the FTC is doing amazing work under the current administration from the perspective of the book, but is, is not the panacea. So we wanted to provide an account that analytically would help think about, you know, occasionally we're going to have to make what might be temporary and cynical alliances between people who do have overlapping sets of concerns. Whether it's the way different parts of in the United States, the left and the right have deep concerns about civil libertarian issues, or the way in which, you know, earlier versions of terrible internet law were fought equally by you know, copyright owners and certain kinds of platforms that usually do not see eye to eye. To think that that kind of work is going to be necessary in order to achieve the kinds of societies that we might have and to recognize that the levers are going to happen at all levels of government, but also going to involve dealing with not just corporations understood as sort of, you know, entities with unified interests, but as entities that are often have are fighting among themselves and are fighting within themselves and that that is all to be taken into account in building a future we want and avoiding the kind of futures that have been foretold and that we're often told are pre-given and that are necessarily going to happen and of course one of the big aspects of people power that that you talk about is labor force within organizations right which is sometimes effective often often not but an organization corporate power is made up of people who contribute their time 
and labor, right? Correctly. And who sometimes become whistleblowers or leaks for journalism or make decisions or people who walk out or organize other actions, large or small. So there's all sorts of ways that people who, I mean, these corporations are made of people, like there's all, all sorts of ways that those individuals affect, create private ordering within a company. Yeah. And you also make clear that there's a common misconception that once again, this is due to vested interests of those who kind of have a lot of power in the information landscape, that state power is often or a lot of the time against corporate power, like limiting corporations, as opposed to, of course, that they set up the infrastructure which allows corporations to, to flourish a, a lot of the time. And all we have to do is look at the birth of the internet and a lot of the technologies we've discussed already and the amount of, of government funding that, that went into them. Yeah, that's true. It's true. Whether it's tax law, it's what allows you to form different kinds of corporations and what digital infrastructures are allowed to form. So, so government has to be seen not as purely a negative check on power, but the very conditions under which different kinds of people power and corporate power come to be. And the more you recognize that, the further you get away from a kind of facile narrative where the government is always a deterrent or stops innovation or these kinds of things, which is just not is simply, it's not historically true. But more than that, it stops us from thinking carefully. Absolutely. And once again, this does bring us back to a wonderful point by David Graeber in The Utopia of Rules, where he has, I think, what he calls the iron law of bureaucratization, where he states that any attempt to create a free market actually involves creating more bureaucracy to support the free market. So ideas of free markets are actually supported by huge, huge amounts of government intervention. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be a fascinating thing to pursue because you could pursue it both in the the markets around data analytics, but if you go deep into the history of machine learning, there are profound free market assumptions about the way that entities work that are built into sort of social algorithms. Mm. Depend on so there's a way you can go very deep and and crunchy and technical and really macro and economic, and I think both of those are really important to the stories we're interested in telling. Absolutely. We wanted, we wanted to end the book with some sort of hope. And also, as you're getting at with the individuals, for technologist students, we wanted them to see that they had ability to impact the future that was not just based on their, their technical abilities or, you know, for anyone who's an employee at the, these companies, which is why we also included a section on ethics and trying to understand what we talk about when we talk about ethics. It's a word that's used sort of to, as a capacious term, we sort of put like a piece of luggage, we put in that luggage everything we want for these companies to have some sort of checks and balances the way we expect to have checks and balances on states. But it's slippery fish, ethics is, defining it, let alone designing a process for enhancing ethics. And when we wrote the book, we were like, well, maybe this is a solved problem and companies are hiring ethicists. But by the time we had finished writing the book, it was pretty clear that companies were firing a lot of their ethicists and there still remains, as we put it in the book, a battle for data ethics. Yeah. And I am I am sorry, we didn't make it to really talk about your ethics chapter. And I do encourage everyone to, to read that because the, the history of the development of institutional review boards, IRBs, based around Be the Belmont principles, how Facebook has adopted some formulation of, of those is actually very important for anyone who works in this space to know about. The use of heuristics as opposed to like hard set rules and, and checklists, I think is also something very much worth, worth thinking more about. We do need to wrap up. But I have one last question. As you know, we have a, a highly technical audience who is not necessarily the only audience for, for this book. So I'm wondering for all the data scientists, machine learning engineers, platform engineers, CTOs out there, 
listening, what can they think about more or what would you like to see them do? Buy the book, I would say. Yeah. And then right. buy and then buy it for their teams. <laughs> Have a book club at work. Yeah, I think that would be great. No, I do think that the book is useful for technologists and non-technologists alike. I mean, when we started teaching the class, at some point we realized there's really important and interesting information that is being taught neither to the technologists nor to the humanists. So yeah. it wasn't a matter of like teaching like physics for poets or something. It was really like there's stuff that's really everyone should know and neither of them, neither sets of communities of students are, are learning. So I really believe that even that whether it's for technologists or for humanists, whether you're thinking about this as something that's going to enhance your functional engagement with data or your critical and rhetorical engagement with data, I, I really think that there's material here that's going to be useful and, and hopefully we hope will remain useful for decades to come. Yeah. And, and just on that note, when we say critical, you know, critical could be just a, right. a negative account. And critical, we mean more in the sense of sort of being really more aware of what are the decisions and the valuations that have gone into. If you're doing data science today, it's a powerful, unbelievably powerful tool, the likes of which we've never seen before in many ways. But when we look at it, we can see its image of earlier moments where people introduce something. And what we want people to do is not necessarily to abandon their practice whatsoever, but to reflect upon what are the decisions that make it successful? Why is the common task framework work for them? And what is being lost along, along the way? And then to conjoin that with what are how is that going to be reflected in the kinds of institutions that people work on? So that it's a, it's critical in the sense of gaining greater distance in order to achieve the kinds of things that collectively you want in an organization or more broadly in a polity. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate the, the optimism you bring to the end of the story as well, because, you know, it is easy to fall into an episode of Black Mirror sometimes when talking, exactly. talking about these types of things. And we need, we need, you know, to build, yeah, we need hope. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. I'd like to thank everyone who joined in the chat for, and all for, for all the lovely comments as well. We have several people who said they didn't know about the book. Thank you so much for the amazing conversation. They've learned so much and we pick, picking up the book. So that's really cool. Thank you all for joining. And also Chris and Matt, thank you so much for your for your time and expertise as well. Thank you for hosting us, Hugo. Yeah, thank you. This was great. It was really enjoyable. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle. And I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.